Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from Monash University, and it's great to be back with you again in 2018. Today's topic is Indonesia's Chinese Muslim minority. What do we know about this minority group? What is their history and what is their situation in Indonesia today? To explore this, we're joined by Hugh Y. Wang from Malaysia's National University. Y. Wang has just published a new book, Chinese Ways of Being Muslim, Negotiating Ethnicity and Religiosity in Indonesia, and he joins us to talk about this topic. Hi, Y. Wang. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to Talking Indonesia. Hi, Gemma. Thanks. It was nice to speak to you. Can you start, Wai Wang, by giving us some of the history of Chinese Muslims in Indonesia? Uh, yeah, sure. Of course, when we talk about uh, Chinese Muslim history, uh, it's uh, very complex. But I think, according to many, the history of Chinese Muslim in Indonesia can be traced back to 15th and 16th centuries. Zheng He, or Zheng Ho, best known in Indonesia, an, an admirer from yeah. China during the Ming Dynasty, uh, he visited several places in Java, Sumatra, and the Malay uh, Peninsula in the 15th uh, 16th century. And his wallis has been seen as a Chinese Muslim, and many Chinese Muslims today believe he played a major role in, in spreading Islam in Java. And of course, there are also some people who believe that some of the Wali Songo, the nine saints who spread Islam in Java, have Chinese descent. Of course, such claims can be problematic and can be disputable. But in generally speaking, uh, many would agree there's a kind of hybrid Sino-Javanese Muslim culture back to 15th and 16th century. This has been reflected in some historical mosques, tomb sites, and other monuments. However, then you come the uh, colonial periods, the divide and rule policies during the Dutch colonial periods. I think many of you know leads to the drawing of stricter boundary between Chinese and the so-called native Indonesians, and this also reducing the number of conversion of ethnic Chinese to Islam. And then we move forward to the period during and after the Indonesian independent period. I think they are beginning effort of some Chinese Muslim leaders to organize themselves and try to contribute themselves to the Indonesian nation building processes. In 1961, PT or Islam Tionghoa in Indonesia, Indonesian Chinese Muslim Association has been established. And then many of you know, then you come the new order period. After the Suharto resumed its power in, in, in 1966, the new order regime repressed any expression of Chinese ethnic culture and religious uh, identities. And this also applied to Chinese Muslim. So for example, PT Persatuan Islam Tionghoa has been forced to change its name to Persatuan Islam Dauhi Indonesia because the Tionghoa has been seen as implying exclusivity. And the Quranic Chinese translation is also not allowed to be distributed. So at that time, the dominant discourse is assimilation lewat Islam, assimilation through conversion to Islam. And some Chinese Muslim leaders as Yusuf Yaya has been a very active promoter by saying that conversion to Islam is a finishing touch of assimilation of any Chinese in Indonesia. So these are the dominant discourse during the New Order period. Can I just ask there, in your interpretation, did assimilation mean an erasure of their Chinese identity and instead an Indonesian and Muslim identity? Yes, I think, of course, the debate on assimilation and also the debate on integration is a huge debate among any Chinese and also among Chinese Muslim. If you refer to Yunus Yahya per se, uh, the Chinese Muslim leader who is very active in promoting this idea of assimilation, a conversion to Islam as a financing touch of assimilation among ethnic Chinese, 
for him I think it's the total erasure of any Chinese or Chinese culture identity and become Muslim and then will become assimilated into the local and the majority be it Javanese, Madurese or Bugis depend where you live but however I think this kind of assimilation even according to Yunus Aya is also very ambiguous and sometimes it's also changing because Yunus Aya also has been active in the late New Order period in the building a Chinese star mosque in Jakarta the Majid Laozi which use certain kind of element of Chinese culture expressions. If you want to build a mosque using Chinese architecture, that means you want to retain your Chineseness. So I think the assimilation process as the propaganda is also sometimes a bit contradicting. But I think it also depends on which period, the early New Order period and then the late New Order period. And also different Chinese Muslim leaders have different take on this issues. In Jakarta, I think if you refer to Yunus Eya, he's more into this total assimilation. But I met some leaders in Surabaya and in Jakarta, even during the New Order periods, they are fine for any Chinese to retain their Chinese identity. So they, so I think it's also quite ambiguous. At one point, they want to assimilate with the so-called pre-Bumi, but at some point, they also would like to retain certain Chinese identities. And, and that is a way for you to preach Islam as well. Yeah according to some of them. So the New Order period, it was complex and you can divide between those two eras perhaps, but there was, as you say, an attempt to erase Chinese culture from within the Indonesian nation state and those elements of Chinese culture which were retained might have included more design and aesthetic architecture, that kind of thing, but the actual ceremonial ritual text elements were not permitted. If we skip ahead to where we are now can you tell us who are Chinese Muslims today how many are there where do they live and how are they expressing their identities yeah I think the collapse of new order regime opened a new chapter for Chinese Indonesian in general and also Chinese Muslim in Indonesia in a very specific way uh, there is an increasing visibility of Chinese Muslim culture in contemporary Indonesia right after the new order period especially so it's reflected in the building of many Chinese star mosques the popularity of Chinese Muslim preachers and also the celebration of Chinese New Year even inside the mosque so I think there's a slight changing discourse from uh, Asimilasi Lewat Budaya during the new order period to in the last decade Da'wah Pendekatan Budaya or preaching Islam by using cultural approaches or I put it uh, culture da'wah by differentiating Chinese cultures, traditions, budaya from the religious rituals, agama some Chinese Muslim leaders think that Chinese culture does not contradict Islamic principle but it can facilitate the spread of Islamic message in contemporary Indonesia this is the major trend changing from new order period to post new order period and then when we talk about Chinese Muslim Indonesia we are actually talking about a very small tiny minority in Indonesia uh, who are scattered across different places in Indonesia archipelago so I speculate that there's about three to five percent of ethnic Chinese in Indonesia are Muslim and many of them are convert of course I elaborate a bit I think it's, it's very problematic to identify who is a Chinese Muslim and on this matter to calculate how many of Chinese Muslim live in Indonesia because as I say many of them are converts many of them converts because of intermarriage some of them due to political and economic considerations and some because of their interest and the commitment in Islam in the religion so many Chinese Muslims are intermarried with non-Chinese and somehow they will be integrated into the local ethnic majorities and some of them will right. not regard themselves as Chinese anymore there are some Chinese Muslim 
convert to Islam for practical reasons and they do not necessarily practice Islam or they also would not want to be identified as a Chinese Muslim in public. So I think on this note, it's very difficult to tell who is Chinese Muslim unless they would like to self-identify themselves. Yeah, so a tiny, tiny minority because we're talking about ethnic Chinese being approximately 3%, maybe that's too many, of the total population of Indonesia and then you're arguing that it's just 3 or 5% of that 3%. So very small numbers. And you said that they're scattered. Are they more urban or rural or would you not make that distinction? It is very difficult to tell. I think in general perception, I think most Chinese Indonesian, not only Muslim, they live in an urban area. But I think there are also some living in a more semi-urban or rural areas. I think especially in the Jawa, Persisiran, uh, in the coastal area of the small towns in Jawa, I think there's also a lot of uh, Chinese Muslim living there. And some of them have been a few generations. But for my own research, I, my research is mostly based in urban context. So um, I've done most of my research in Jakarta and then Surabaya and a lesser extent in Yogyakarta and Palembang. But other than that, I think they are scattered in urban and, and semi-urban and small towns in Indonesia. Yes. So mostly they are first generation converts to Islam? Yes, most of them, I would say, they are first-generation convert. Of course, they are second-generation convert. And indeed, instead, not then, it's more diverse because some might not see themselves as Chinese Muslim anymore. So I think it's very difficult to trade the second or third-generation convert. So my research is mostly talk to the first generation and some of them are second generation, which most of them are intermarriage. Can I just ask, you mentioned that the other reasons for conversion may be economic and political imperatives. What do you mean by that? Yes, I think the political reason, I think, is mostly during the New Order period. I think conversion to Islam as a way to integrate, I see this kind of a social political uh, consideration for them to gain recognition, to become more Indonesia. So there are some people convert for that reason. And there are some also convert for building certain economic relationships with the local uh, religious elite and also to get along with certain government officials. So to make their business more easy and so on. Some segment of Chinese Muslim, especially some Chinese Muslim elder men, some of them are conversion are for some more non-religious reasons, let's say. And some of them, they also see conversion to Islam as a way to buy into certain form of security. So as, as you know, there's some history of so-called anti-Chinese feelings that, that some of them, they think by conversion to Islam, they will become part of the pre-bumi in certain way, so they will buy into them some form of securities as well. Do you think that that actually happens in reality, that the security is there for them? I think it depends on the context. I think it also depends on how you understand anti-Chinese so-called movement or action. In I think even during the 1998 riots, there are some shops, even they put themselves as Muslim, they are still being attacked because they are Muslim, but they are not pre-Bumi. So you are still Chinese, even if you are Chinese Muslim. But on the other hand, I do think that some Chinese Muslims are also building certain bridge between ethnic Chinese and Muslim organization by having a very good relationship with certain authorities, figures and leaders to give some kind of protection to them at certain point as well. But this depends on the context, depends on where you are, because Indonesia is a big country. So what happened in Jakarta might be different what happened in Yogyakarta and Surabaya. 
talk to us a little bit about what you describe in your book as this critical moment that happened after the fall of the New Order, where you saw what you describe as a confluence of Chinese euphoria and Islamic resurgence at that time. What, what do you mean by that? And what were its implications for Chinese Muslims? Thanks. I think I mainly refer to various literatures or, or writings about the emergence of public expressions of Chinese culture and political identities, as well as the growing influence of Islam in Indonesian public spheres, especially after the New Order period. So I use the term Chinese euphoria on Islamist resurgence, mostly uh, referring to various research on this trend of the growing expression of Chinese and also Islamic identity in Indonesia public space after mm -hmm. the New Order period. And I think these two phenomena are very important setting and form a very broader context to understand the formation and also the negotiation of Chinese Muslim in Indonesia, especially after the New Order period. Because Chinese Muslim, they have to engage with and also at the same time, they might also contribute to these practices and discourses of both being Chinese and being Muslim in Indonesia. So one of the chapters is about the popularity of Chinese Muslim preachers who use their Chineseness to attract Muslim audiences. So I think their popularities of Chinese Muslim preachers reflects that many Indonesian Muslim are actually quite open to accept Chinese cultural expressions. And their preaching is also tailoring to meet the demand of many urban pious Muslim middle class who seek to learn Islam in a more interesting and new way. So Chinese Muslim preachers reflect this one hand the Chinese cultural identities and also the growing uh, Islamic religiosity. So I think they bring them together and they also contribute to this growing form of expression of identities in Indonesian today. Right, so it was a positive outcome, this coming together, as you describe it, of this expression of Chineseness plus an expression of Islamic identity, which is really interesting and maybe runs counter to what some people might imagine would be the case. So can you tell me a little bit more about these preachers and the style that they have, which you said appeals because it's kind of new and a bit different and it appeals to non-Chinese. So what was it that was appealing about these guys? There are many... Chinese Muslim preachers in Indonesia today, to name some of them. You have Koko Lim, you have Anton Medan, you have Tan Mei Hua, Shafia Antonio, and one of the most controversial and popular one today is uh, Felix Yao. And all of them are preachers of any Chinese background, and most of them are convert. So I think the most important selling point or attracting point of all of them, one is being Chinese, and the second being Mualaf or being a convert. I think Indonesian preacher is a very big market today and these two uniqueness are some Chinese Muslim they're able to offer. The Chinese Muslim offers certain kind of exoticness because most Chinese are seen as non-Muslim. They are Christian or Buddhist. So if they are Muslim, it's something new and something interesting. And that's why some Chinese Muslim preacher, for example, Tan Mei Hua, he uses her Chinese name. And Kokolim, he always wear traditional Chinese clothing. So these are the form for them to attract Muslim audiences. On the other hand is the conversion. I think also play an important role. This is a very convincing and very interesting because some would say if a non-Muslim become a Muslim can be a good Muslim. I think they know this and they play out this quite well. The experience of the conversion and how to become a pious Muslim. And this is also very attractive to many Muslim Indonesian who are nominally Muslim but they are not practicing Muslim. And these Chinese Muslims see themselves set a good example and role model for this non-practicing Muslim to become a pious one. But of course, when we talk about Chinese Muslim preachers, we are talking a huge range of different kind of approaches and different kind of preachers. It's just like Indonesian preachers, yeah, they are very diverse 
in terms of religious affiliation, organization, and approaches. So can it be said that there's a Chinese way of being Muslim? To study about Chinese Muslim in Indonesia, I think we need to look into two layers. Uh, first, I think there are some Chinese Muslim businessmen and preachers who are very enthusiastic in mixing Islamic messages and Chinese cultural expression to show there is a Chinese way of being Muslim. So I think it's very clearly reflected in the trend of building Chinese star mosques. So the first one being the Chenghe Mosque in Surabaya. And today there are about uh, 15 Chinese star mosques uh, across the Indonesian archipelago. Built since the end of the New Order? Uh, there are a couple during the late New Order period in Jakarta, the Laozi Mosque. But the more uh, vivid and more strong expression is uh, the first one is the Surabaya Chenghe Mosque, I think built in 2002. As in today, there are about 15 Chinese star mosques in Indonesia from Makassar to Palembang, Bambang uh, Sujanto, the founder of the Surabaya Jinghe Mosque. Uh, he said, conversion to Islam does not mean we are giving up our Chinese culture identities. So according to him, there's a Chinese way of being Muslim. As I said before, there are some Chinese Muslims who are proud to be seen as Chinese Muslim. I also see some of them, they say, ah, oh, I'm just biologically Chinese. Culturally, I'm Javanese. There are some Chinese Muslims celebrating Chinese New Year in the mosque. And then there are some of them that say, yeah, Chinese New Year celebration might be haram. So we are talking a huge range of religiosities among Chinese Muslims. There are people in Nalatu Ulama and Muhammadiyah. There are people in Islamist PKS. There are also some in the so-called radicals from Bambela Islam and Hishpotaleo. So in this way, I think there's not a Chinese way of being Muslim, but multiple ways of being Chinese and being Muslim in Indonesia. What do you conclude from your studies that the Chinese Muslim culture as it's emerged you know, in the last 15 to 20 years can tell us about cultural and religious diversity in Indonesia? So I think studying Chinese Muslim actually is studying about the diversity and the complexity of Muslim in Indonesia overall. Uh, to put it very bluntly, there's a growing acceptance of cultural diversity, yet at the same time the rejection of uh, religious pluralities or religious pluralism among uh, some segments of Indonesian Muslim. So, many Muslims are fine with the visibility of Chinese Muslim, but some of them might be uneasy with other Muslim minorities, albeit Shia, Ahmadi, LGBT, and so-called liberal Muslim. Can we turn to the events of the last few years? Many observers have written about the conservative turn, the so-called conservative turn in Indonesia uh, in more recent times. And I know that you've written in particular about the anti-Ahok rallies in Jakarta at the end of 2016. What did you conclude? Did you think that it was something that was an ethnically driven case or was it all about religion or was it just about Ahok as a particular political leader? Where did you fall in that debate that was going on? Also very complicated issue. I think in general, I agree that the anti-Chinese sentiments has been activated has been manipulated and also popularized during this so-called anti-Ahok movement or the so-called Aksibela Islam or the Defending Islam actions. I agree that the, the anti-Chinese sentiment has been activated and manipulated in some way, but I hesitate to view anti-Ahok movement as anti-Chinese one. I think many writings and many analyses have been pointing out the various class, religious and political dynamics behind the Aksibela Islam movement, the so-called anti-Ahok anti movement. So I, I think I have written some articles uh, talk about the competition between middle classes as well as the contestation between different segments of Muslim in Indonesia that lie behind the movement. I think I will not say that this anti-Ahok movement is an anti-Chinese one, but I do think this movement has a huge impact on the discourses 
and practices of culture and religious pluralism in Indonesia. And even how Chinese Muslims respond to this development. As I mentioned, Chinese Muslims are as diverse, if not more diverse than Muslim Indonesia. So we have Felix Xiao, who is a very strong critic of Ahok. And then we have Anton Medan, the chairperson of PT, uh, the Basatuan Islam Tionghoa Indonesia, uh, is number one, or, or very strong supporter for Ahok. So Chinese Muslim itself are also quite divided. I think it also depends where they are coming from, which religious uh, affiliation they are aligned to and so on. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about Felix Xiao? How does his Chineseness play out? Uh, Felix Xiao is a very interesting, popular, but also divisive and controversial figure. Actually, I first met him in 2008. At that time, he's not yet popular and also uh, uh, quite a low profile picture uh, in the Hatei, among the Hatei circles. However, I think he, he, he admitted that his Chinese and also his Mualaf status is, is very important and also an attractive point uh, to many Indonesian uh, Muslims. So he publicly clipped his Chinese name, Felix Xiao, but he did approve of uh, Chinese New Year celebrations. And also, he do not use that much Chinese culture approaches or Chinese culture symbolics uh, in his preaching. So, I think what contributed to his rapid rise as a popular preacher after the year 2000 is not only his Chinese-ness per se or his Chinese identities per se, but more about his creative use of social media and visual approaches uh, in his preachings. So I think he's one of the leading social media preachers in Indonesia today. More than 4 million Facebook followers, 2 million Twitter and 1 million Instagram followers. Having said that, I think he's still very strategic in playing up his Chinese and convert status in his uh, political and religious activism. So he often said that anti-Ahok is not anti-Chinese because he's also Chinese. So anti-Ahok is about against someone who are not sensitive to Muslim sentiments, who are speaking against Muslim interests and so on. So he, he joined most of these uh, Aksibela Islam rallies in Indonesia and he said he's quite well received and this shows that the crowd are not anti-Chinese. In other words, his presence speaks well to the conservative Muslim which fight to embrace cultural diversity but not necessarily uh, religious pluralism. So I think he's very clever and strategic in playing up this and how to make him uh, being very acceptable among certain segments of Indonesian Muslim. Wow. Why do you think he's kept the Chinese name from the beginning? Because he knew that it was an asset for his profile, is that why? Yes, I would say I would think so. And I think to, I think it's not, not only him, I think at that time his conversion to Islam is in 2002. So that's right after the New Order period. So I think at that time being Chinese is kind of like very acceptable and, and it's popular and also it's, it's also marked him different from other preachers and other Muslims. I think not only himself, I think some of his Ustad uh, preach or, or his seniors also I think prefer him to keep his Chinese name. So by showing that a Chinese can also be a Muslim and even a Chinese can also be part of this so-called Hatei radical movement. So we are kind of inclusive in a certain way according to them. The point I would like to make I think is today in Indonesia, the, how we frame the question is maybe not framing between tolerance or intolerance, inclusive or exclusive. But I think we are talking about the skills of inclusivity, the skills of tolerance and also how you define and redefine the meanings of inclusiveness and also uh, tolerance. Because Felix Xiao and also the Nalata Ulama activists, they are both talking about inclusive Islam. They promote the notion of Islam Ramadan Nira Alamin. 
Islam as oppressing for all. But the message they carry out very different. So I think the question is now is which version of inclusive Islam is more popular and more convincing among uh, ordinary Indonesian Muslims today. And this is yet to be observed. You mentioned in the book, and you said earlier, that there is this role for Chinese Muslims to play as bridge builders. Can you give me any examples, um, perhaps in more recent times, perhaps around the Ahok issue, if there is one? Yeah, when we're talking about these anti-Ahok things, I talked to Andon Medan, uh, who is a chairperson of PITI, Persatuan Islam Tianhua Indonesia. He is an interesting case. He used to be a good friend of Habib Rizik back in 1998. But recently, I think they fall apart. I think because Anton Medan is a very strong supporter for Ahok and at the time Jokowi and now uh, Ahok as a governor in the government election. So Anton Medan, to a certain extent, he, he, he tried to play yeah so-called bridge builder role in this way to link the Chinese Indonesian to Muslim Indonesian and then especially in all these Ahok incidents. I think he tried to show that the Chinese Muslim or a non-Muslim is okay, to, is permissible to lead Muslim societies. And then he frequently appear in some pro-Ahok campaigns and so on. And another point, he also built certain connection with certain Muslim organizations and also certain paramilitary organizations, according to him, to try to make Indonesia as peace as possible. He lived in Jakarta Utara, where many of his neighbors are non-Muslim Chinese. And then he said with his present he can protect them and there are some non-Muslim Chinese feel really insecure and so on. I think Anton Medan tried to convince them with his presence he can bring certain right. kind of security. But I think this is only one case is not applied to broader dynamic. Before we finish, maybe we go back to the Chengho Mosque in Surabaya. Because that's a great example of bridge building within a space and organizationally, isn't it? Because it's a mosque, but it's open for non-Muslims as well. Can you tell us about the function of the Chengho Mosque in Surabaya? Yeah, I think the Chengho Mosque Surabaya is a very, a very interesting case. And it also very successful, not only it itself, because it also set an example for many other mosques to follow. So as I said before, now today we have 15 Chinese style mosques and some are built by non-Chinese Muslim. So they are built by NU related or Muhammadiyah related and even PKS or the Islamic party related individuals in different parts of Indonesia. The Surabaya Chengho Mosque uh, is interesting. It's located in actually in a Chinese majority neighborhood next to a Catholic hospital. And the construction funding mainly come from non-Muslim Chinese businessmen with the endorsement of NU and Muhammadiyah. So it is this very interesting place and it has been seen as inclusive and has been promoted in the newspaper by the religious tourism board and by various religious organizations as a place where non-Muslim and Muslim, Chinese and non-Chinese can mix together. So it's not only a religious place, but it also offers facilities such as badminton court, basketball court and so on. So, so I think the most is an example of an inclusive expression of Chinese Muslim identities. And most people go to pray at the mosque during the Friday prayers are uh, actually non-Chinese, they are Javanese or Madurese Muslim. But I think also research needs to be done more on what actually going on in the mosque. Now there are 15 Chinese style mosques, different mosques may have go through different dynamics. So it might not be surprising, I think Felix Xiao speak at one of the Chinese style mosques in Makassar. I think Habib Rizi also invited to speak in one of the Zhenghe mosques 
in Palembang. So at that point, do they really promote inclusive or cosmopolitan Islam is questionable. So there is a certain limit of them. I think there's positive thing, but they might also have certain kind of limitation of this inclusive Islam. That was Hugh Y. Wang, research fellow at the Institute of Malaysian and International Studies at the National University of Malaysia. His research interests focus upon the intersections between ethnicity, religiosity, class, and politics in Malaysia and Indonesia. The book we were discussing today is Chinese Ways of Being Muslim, Negotiating Ethnicity and Religiosity in Indonesia, published by Nias Press. You can also find Wai Weng's articles on the New Mandala website, including his investigation of the preacher Felix Xiao. Talking Indonesia will return on the 15th of February, hosted by Dirk Thompson. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. You can subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.